I'm Angela Mann, and in February 2017, I travelled to Bangladesh to witness the living conditions of Rohingya people living in the refugee camps there and to hear their stories. This is my journey. Two years ago now, we decided to try out an Indian restaurant in Bagnallstown. We had a gorgeous meal there, but the man that served me, at some point I turned to him and I said, I don't think you're actually from India, are you? And he said, no, I'm not, I'm Rohingya. His people are originally from Burma, Myanmar. They had fled across the border to Bangladesh, where he had lived in a refugee camp for a number of years before being resettled in Ireland. An official welcome was given to 13 families from the Rohingya community in Burma at a celebration in Carlo yesterday. The seven Within Bangladesh, there are an estimated 200 to 300,000 Rohingya refugees. Vast majority of them are unregistered refugees, so they're in various refugee camps or they're scattered all over Bangladesh. It's widely acknowledged that this community is one of the worst oppressed, persecuted and forgotten ethnic groups in the world today. St. Catherine's Community Resource Centre in Carlow would have been responsible for all sorts of community liaison. I spoke to Thomas Farrell, who put me directly in touch with Mohamed Rafiq, who he felt would be the best spokesperson for the group. I'm Mohamed Rafiq. I'm originally from Burma, born in uh, Ikea, Arakan State. I was in Bangladesh refugee camp 17 years. I got married in refugee camp. Finally, 2009, uh, with the help of UNHCR and the Irish government, I, I came to Ireland. I was slightly afraid that there would be cultural barriers, that maybe their level of English wouldn't be good enough, maybe we would struggle to communicate. It's all probably created by military. Really, that initial meeting, the one thing that I carried away with me was this sense of sadness that Rafiq certainly carries a lot on his shoulder. They like to be controlled, their power. He is so grateful for the opportunities he has himself. But I think it struck me was how difficult it, it is to move on when you know you've left so many other brothers and sisters, as they say in Islam, community members, his parents, his own direct siblings, you know, neighbours and friends that are still behind, still in a refugee camp in Bangladesh, or worse still, those that are left behind in Myanmar and not knowing their faith. And even now in Ireland, it's really, really hard for him because he still has that shadow over him, the weight of the people that he's left behind. Every single day, young children are dying without treatment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hazara Shahar Jalal International Rafiq was actually planning to travel back to Bangladesh. I wanted to see firsthand what he had come from. I wanted to try and transport listeners to give them some sense of the experiences of the people who had moved here. The very first man I met kept expressing gratitude and it made me feel really proud as an Irish person that we had contributed real genuine grassroots impact on people's lives. When they put the letter J for journalist on my visa, I didn't realise the ramifications that that would have. Once I got out of that immigration office in Dhaka, I had this wave of relief. And then in order to get my connecting flight, I needed to leave the airport for the internal flights and got onto that flight. It was propellered airplane. So that was a novelty and very noisy. And there was a cockroach running up along the luggage belt. I kept watching him because he was really fast. And I was thinking any minute now he's going to fall down on top of me. And then Rafiq was there waiting for me outside the gates of the airport. Hi, how are you? and haggled with the uh, Tom Tom driver. 
once I stepped in that journey was a bit of a bombardment on the senses it was just a total sensory overload the smells the colours the sounds the noise the absolutely insane driving and the complete lack of rules of the road and the heat instantly hit me so yeah that afternoon I just relaxed got settled into my hotel which I think on their website they claim to be three stars certainly not three stars by our standards I'm standing at quite a good viewing point I guess of the refugee camp and I'm seeing hut after hut just thousands and thousands so the first camp I went to was in a place called Balukuli. Really warm, really beautiful place in quite a remote part, which is very unusual in such an overpopulated country. Very scenic journey too, because all along that distance, there's this beautiful sandy beach. We are going to Balukuli first. Balukuli, okay. And we've, we've passed a good long stretch of beach. It's yeah. around, how many miles are we away from Cox's Bazaar? Or kilometres? 45 kilometres. 45 kilometres. A lot of paddy fields and banana groves and things like that in the area. Belonging to local Bangladesh farmers. I spoke to one of those landowners who feels quite proud to have given over his property to them. He said they are welcome to use it. And so how does he feel about all these people moving into his area? He's feeling good because he just maintaining the humanity. He feels he just give them the land for to live. That's why he feels so good. Balukali is a relatively new camp. When I was there, people had started arriving, people had started to build huts there just two months before that. And already there were thousands and thousands of people. Some of the NGOs had put in one or two water wells. So they had drinking water, but you know, you'd have to walk quite a distance to get to them. But they had safe drinking water, which was a massive advantage. How big is this area then, just this particular camp? Around how many people do you think are here? <coughs> Uh, nearly 2,500 family. families. Families? That's not, not individual people? Yeah, yeah, not individual people, it's a family. Okay, 2,500. Many. Many, many people. Nearly half, um, one and a half, half months that this camp was settled in here. Only, only one and a half months. When the camp was the full Kutupala, when it started there is many, many heart was destroyed by local villagers and foresters. And if this was Ireland and there were travellers... They'd have to ask permission from a farmer, or they'd be they'd be moved along shortly afterwards. That's true, but here here also same. It's, they're showing sympathy. There's many people who come flee from the persecution of Burma. They have no choice. They have no house. So they're safe here for a while. Yeah. Whatever about the bad facilities, at least least it's secure. I was taken for a walk through the place. Oh my God. The hill, you realise how much bigger the camp is. So many huts. So many people. Really interweaved, just houses upon houses, shacks upon shacks, interweaved and meandering little streets. And that's for everything from drinking to washing to cooking. and cooking, everything, for everything. I wanted to find out more about the homes that people are creating for themselves. So I was asking about the hut, how many people live inside there. Like one of them was the size of my kitchen and there were three families living in that little hut. You can see they have, they have no mat and no food. 
It was made from bamboo cane and bits of grass weaved. If they had access to a little bit of money, they would buy some black plastic for the roofing. Some people had kind of patched together bits of sackcloth for the roof. What are they're trying to gather mud, is it, to build or what have they yeah, been? Yeah, to build up their to build up their house and to clean up their floor. Yeah. And all of the structures that are here, however, made them themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's women and children and everybody is carrying the clay to help with building the house. So they'd have to dig a foundation two foot deep and then get the bamboo cane, obviously very flimsy for what a family would need. And the heat was constantly hitting me. So I kept thinking, what must it be like to live in this in summer to have a black plastic roof? Never mind that there are rainy seasons. That little girl is maybe a little bit older than my own daughter is five. Yeah. That little girl that's yeah, she may five carrying or so, five or six years. A lot of very heavy yeah. sticks. Yeah, but she's so strong. She's very strong. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how when she hasn't been very well fed. Because or this, uh, the culture situation of Myanmar. She's very determined anyway. Hard working. Yeah, 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 yeah. The people of there, they, they always work daily. And they got their food themselves from their land. A little boy with a broken arm wrapped in a bandage. His grandfather approaching me and speaking about his story. He's his son. He's okay. broken by arm military. He was just beaten by the military because he wasn't working hard enough. And he's only a child, so why would they possibly have... See, see the, when the military came to our uh, aid, they, they bring the, all the omens, they were children, to be raped, to gang rape. And then when they, they get the male or child, does not matter, child or man, and they are beaten. He had come across the border seeking medical aid because it wasn't healing correctly at all. He did get medical aid through Médecins Sans Frontières. They couldn't face going back to Burma, didn't know what future they had back there, and so they decided to take their chances in refugee camps. His grandfather was really distressed, really upset as he told me the story, as was I hearing it. So, so it's it is forced slave labour effectively and if he wasn't working hard enough yeah. this happens. Um, I, don't, I don't have the words to express to them. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, it's too emotional. It's too emotional. That was a story that was repeated and repeated and repeated again and again to me. After hearing it once, your eyes are open and you actually notice how many kids are going around with a bandage on their arm or with a bulge where you're kind of going, oh, there was a bone there that was broken, never healed correctly, and they will forever have this affected forevermore by it. As I approached one home to find out how they were getting on and learn more about their journey, find out more about the home, I spoke to a woman there who explained that actually those two children were orphans. And so I said, OK, are they your nieces or nephews? And she said, no, they were random children that I realised had lost both parents. So I've taken them in. And she already had children of her own, but out of kindness and a sense of community, a sense of responsibility, she has taken on these and how long have you been here? One month ago. A month ago. Her mom also died, and also her father. Her father also died. So they're orphans. Yeah. Both of them, brother and sister. Yeah. And you're living together here. Is this lady uh, an aunt or a neighbor? How did they know each other beforehand? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's wonderful. How are you surviving day to day? How do you prepare a meal, for example? 
So like one, this, she one small meal a day. If she had rice, but she did not have. Uh, she did not have soap. If she had uh, soap, she did not have rice. Like that. The woman is also busy. She is also busy. She also doesn't have uh, her husband. A single suffering. mother with uh, yeah. four of her own children yeah, and has yeah, taken yeah. in two more. Uh, and a wonderful sense of humanity. And that's another brother. He's his middle brother. Okay. All together living here? Yeah, his house is near. This is your house? Okay. Can you ask him if he likes his house? No. He's shaking. That was a big solid shake of the head. That's absolute no. I do not like my house. What games do you play here? What games? So he's showing you the ball. ball and the okay, so it's just taped. Okay, he's, so he's made his own ball. Yeah. And does that ball belong to him now? Will he be very protective yeah. of his cricket bat? His cricket bat. Yeah. Do you know who this is? This is yeah, yeah, Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. For soccer, do you like yeah. to kick football? The football is fun to go around, Yeah, he likes. But he don't know this one is Brazil jersey. Yeah. And I just keep thinking about my own girls and how how our lives are so different. Well, has no clothes. No clothes at all. Yeah. And this little boy has a, a club foot and won't have any treatment. It's okay. Even they have no food to eat, you know. But he's full of full of life. I'd say he's full of chat. Yeah. Yeah. What What's his name? Mamotoki. And he's got an amazing smile. He's wonderful. He doesn't. Have, he didn't have anything left. Only for a smile. I'm going to take a step I'm going to take a step back as Rafiq is talking to the women inside I'm just taking it all in there's so many children here so many very strong women I see little kids who I can clearly see are malnourished and hungry and really really curious about the white lady there's a little little boy playing with the lid of a shoebox it's been disregarded by somebody else and they're picking it up to play with it um, an empty deodorant tin little baby has yeah. there. It's the closest thing to a rattle he can get. Definitely no shoes. Yeah. And they're lucky to have a little skirt or T-shirt they or anything. To, how can they, they can buy shoes? I remember walking through the camp in Balukali. In the middle of it, a man kind of sidestepped us from between two huts and stood in front of me speaking. Initially, I felt very afraid because he was kind of almost shouting. In the middle of it, I could pluck out these beautiful, solid English words. Citizenship, solution, other, polluting human rights. Genocide. Basically, he was just explaining who he was, explaining his journey, and he's in the middle of it. You could hear solidarity, and you could hear charity and humanity. So these were his requests to me. I, I, I feel like I don't even need a translation. The new arrival didn't get any facilities, so he's regarding that if the European Union and the other donors give them enough facilities of force, medical, and also education, he will be very. That was my first solid experience of the journey of people from Myanmar into Bangladesh. All that separates Bangladesh from Myanmar is a barbed wire fence border and the Naf River. So understandably, that's where the majority who are fleeing end up. 
The Arakan state, or the Rakhine state, where the Rohingya people come from, is on the western coast of Myanmar. Some people take their chances across the Bay of Bengal and end up in India or Sri Lanka, but very few of them expect to survive the boat journey. So it's very isolated. Like we've come, okay. we've come a long distance from yeah. the nearest town, and it's all just refugees in this area. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, it is very close to Burma border. This is if you go a bit here, this is the border. Okay. Yeah, you can see the border of Myanmar. We can see the border. Oh my god, it's just a stone's throw away. Yeah. This is the border. This is the fence. Border of Myanmar. I spoke to one lady who explained that she was eight months pregnant when she left Myanmar and she had to travel for about five days. Her husband had been killed and she had been raped. Her children had witnessed all of that. So she carried her unborn child, her little two-year-old and her other two kids along with whatever few bits that they could gather up, which was very, very little. She explained that they had to go through paddy fields and mangroves day and night and she said of all the things that she carried, the fear was the greatest weight across that border. There was a huge sense of fear in them. Nadim Qadir is a former press minister with the Bangladesh High Commission in London. I just could have compared that when I was young and, and when there was a war in Bangladesh, we were attacked by the Pakistani army and we were, we were scared. We lived with fear for many months until the war ended. To me, it appeared that they were also in a similar situation. They were running for their life. He was one of the first journalists to report on the issue. That was in 91. There was uh, democracy just returned to Bangladesh after a long military and set of military rule. And I saw small news in a new daily newspaper that some Burmese people were crossing into border into Bangladesh. So I contacted a colleague of mine in Cox's Bazaar and I went down and he told me it was a few hundred but when I went down it was several thousand and then with the three or four days I was there it, it became a huge exodus. Men, women and children, even small babies. It was very terrible to look at what was happening to these people in this part of the world. Camps were set up and they were accommodated there. I don't know how to reflect the scale of my first encounter with a refugee camp and then being told, actually, this one is brand new, it's very small and it's not very highly populated at the minute. The heat is only cruel, so I can only imagine what it'll be like at the height of summer. I've come at what's springtime and it's about 33 or 4 degrees Celsius today and there's little kids walking, you know, 4 and 5 kilometres more just to gather wood to bring it back. Oh, it's just the size of it is really overwhelming when you think how many people are living in that situation. Little boy chasing a plastic bag there. He's about three years of age. Just a little t-shirt on him and nothing else. See, some um, solar panels, that's really kind of good to see. They're only like one foot by one foot. Are you going to talk to Yeah, sure. One home I went into and the first little vision I saw was a little baby crawling, so I'd say maybe seven months old, wearing nothing, only a little teeny vest. And she was playing with the end of a plastic bottle. Obviously somebody's disregarded rubbish that had been made into a little rattle for her. And she was really intrigued with my hat, so I handed her over my hat and she had a nibble on that while I spoke to her mammy and her aunties. Oh, you're so beautiful. Yeah. 
and her auntie handed me yeah. one little baby who yeah. had been born in also one of the Medson Sans Frontier clinics. Yeah. Uh, his son, she, she gone to MSF hospital. She indicated me that uh, they don't have enough water. They have to collect water to long distance. Yes. They didn't have yeah. any facilities of a toilet. If they had to go to hospital, they have to travel long journey. Could, could I hold They're the baby? Like, yeah, could I? Oh, I'd love to. Okay, can I give you this? She was a month old at the time. She was really kind of crying and quite distressed. And I held on to her and got her settled while listening to her mammy's story of travelling over from Burma while she was heavily pregnant with her in the hope that she could get medical help because it was her second child and she thought something was different this time for her. Burma, the government of military cart and kill it like kind of they, they would kill the baby as small yeah. as this yeah. and they no other reason except that they are Rohingya yeah. she made it to the clinic and her little baby was born and she was a fabulous little thing but my feeling my heart is curious as to where she is now because she felt to me malnourished she looked quite malnourished and her little belly was all swollen and yeah it was really distressing for me to hold her because we can all relate to seeing the little little babies that age and the joy that they bring and the happiness and how they've the whole world ahead of them it's too dark they don't have any facilities else they just pass in their life in this sorrowful life yeah, yeah. <laughs> That little baby for me represented so much of what was wrong with the world and how man's inhumanity to man could put a little baby in that position that has no hopes. So I handed her back asleep and I hope she's well right now. Way back in 2004, the process was started for registering these refugees to decide who should be resettled, where they would be resettled. And it was all done through the UNHCR. So their responsibility was to identify refugees who they felt were most vulnerable. So whether their requirements were long term health needs, single women would be seen as being very vulnerable within the camps, very young children that are orphaned. They were kind of the criteria they used a really, really difficult task. Amongst those was my friend Mohammed Rafiq. The reason Rafiq was picked was because he had been liaising with UN officers within the camp and because of that he had really put his own life under focus. My life was not safe in the air. I, I explained my parents. My parents said, don't worry about us. Your life is very risky. And my mom bring me in the big hog and she said, you can, you can tell them I'm ready to go. We're always praying for you. So the day that you travelled to Ireland, the day that you got on the plane, you've got a beautiful magazine and I read it, the little piece about um, it was the first time being in an airport, yeah, yeah, first never... time being on a bus. And was your wife still pregnant or had she given birth at this stage? No, when we play, that, that time it was bad in the game. Jamalida and Wahida are bright, beautiful, witty, amazing little girls. I have two calls. Jamalida was born in the camp, in the refugee camp, and Wahida was born here in Ireland. I see. What is different? Her mum got an ambulance from the door into St. Luke's. I had the pleasure of getting to know them during my trip. I didn't see my grandparents for eight years. They were so good and so kind to me. And I left them when I was only eight months. Talking to me about their grandparents and talking to me about their experience. I know, I know, go and, and 
So only mommy came to school on grandparents' day. You yeah. couldn't bring your grandparents. Because it's too far away. It's amazing that I'm related to this country. I have lots of family here. I was supposed to be originally Burma, but instead I ended up in Bangladesh. And I suppose they were on the same wavelength as me because this was their first time back. When Jamalida left, she was only a few months old, so obviously had no memory of where she had come from. So it was as much of a culture shock for them as it was for me. What did you think of Granny's house? First I thought they made it, but they said they didn't. Who made it? They said that the government gave them, I think. UNHCR. What was it made out of? Like, if I was to try and make a house, I'd it, get a builder and... It was made out of, like, bamboos, sticks and large branches holding it together large wood in between the bamboo sticks like small skinny parts of it okay. then they told they took me where the, where they get their food they went gardening it was a bit more far away there was a big watermelon waiting for wahida wahida got that watermelon we were picking peas and then i saw my granddad feeding the pigeons they had um chickens too they used to have three but one one was sick and they died. They were so graceful in the way that you, they just accepted everything. From Our Western toilets are very, very different to the messy little holes that you're introduced to in Bangladesh. But they just accepted it, got on with it. It was kind of nice to have them to sound off of, to kind of go, oh my God, did you notice this thing? And they would say, yeah, it's so different, isn't it? I'm really happy. I'm really proud of my girl. She said, Daddy, can I have an appointment with me? I said, for what? What kind of appointment for you? She said, Daddy, you know, a boy came to my uh, granny house. He said to me, that they have no school. And their school was closed by Burma military because they are Rohingya. I said, who said to you? She said, a boy, is, you know, the, his name is Abu. He said to me, they have no school. Our school was closed because they are Rohingya. For Rohingya, they have no, we don't have any education, right? Our children have no right to go to school. So we organize ourselves to be encourage the young children to be go to the school. That's why the most of the people are come forward to be help their community as a volunteer. I visited a school and the children were absolutely fabulous. They were in a school that wasn't a whole lot bigger than my kitchen. There were 30 or 40 kids in the room. This is one of the schools school that was set up by the NGOs. Yeah, yeah, sure. Hello. Physically, the building was all mud walls, so their blackboard was to just scrape into the wall itself. And the, the roof itself was twigs and bamboo canes and a lot of sackcloth. There were holes in it, umpteen holes in it. And when I was there, it was really warm. So really, the roof was to provide shade in that instance. But again, there was way too hot. I could only imagine what the rainy season does to it. You can see how they're studying. Yeah, and there's no desks. No pens, yeah. nothing. They're sitting on the ground. Uh, yeah, some they're, they're sitting on the ground yeah. and starting here. Yeah, and in a circle. They don't have uh, enough benches, uh, enough higher bench, enough low bench, enough blackboards. And also they're writing in the wall. They don't have blackboards, so... No blackboard. No. So you're writing directly onto... And it's yeah, a clay wall. This is the children's education, education program. program. Most of the Rohingya NGOs who are living in Europe 
they are just helping them for study. So, so this is wonderful to see where the money goes. Yeah, his name is Tafarelam. Our program has um, 40 in the school. 40 in the school. Our supervisor have master kava. One subject have 45 minutes. Five subjects at our school. Five subjects. It is level two. And what about Rohingya culture? Because in Ireland, we would make sure to teach to teach the children about our, our history and our heritage. Actually, there's a problem. The children uh, haven't any clothes, any foods. They don't have money to buy anything new. That's so that they are surviving their life so sore. So it's, it's not a priority. More important things are maths and English and getting very the basic education so that they can read and write. Their books were supplied by a charity. They didn't have any pencils or pens or anything like that. Within the children themselves, I asked, do people have to force them to come to school? Because it's not that it's a registered education. It's not that anyone is clocking in attendance. They all want to go to school. Parents push them to school, but actually they don't need to be pushed because they're clever enough to know the value of an education. They're willing to come. Great. So they're enthusiastic. And how about the parents? Because I've noticed that quite a lot of children are doing work at home. Are they needed in their homes? Are parents reluctant to send them to school because they might feel that they're needed at home? The parents are eager also to let them here. They're eager and yeah, they encourage yeah, yeah, them. Yeah, they encourage them. That's good. That's very good. Yeah. Could I speak to one of the children of then? Who, who would like to speak to me? Who will yeah, all speak to me? They've all gone quiet. <laughs> Hello, so tell him my name is Angela. Good afternoon. He's saying good afternoon. Good afternoon to you too. Your name is? Mohammed Zafralam. Zafralam. And uh, what age are you? How about two? Okay. Are you happy to be in school? To get a school back to Shina? To get a push in So happy. And what's your favorite subject? English. English. And that's why you're so good. You came up and said thank you to me and welcome. Well done. Thank you for speaking to me. I'll let you back to your lessons and stay working hard. Well done. So in Ireland, do you walk to school? Yeah. I'm I'm in two class and my sisters and what? Eleven. Year eleven. So it's uh, four class, right? What's the name of your school? School Marigan Small. Oh, and where is that? That's in Carlotown? Ireland. One of the her friends, like same age, she asked, are you going to school? He said, I'm not going to school because our school is closed and our village, village was burned by military. She was surprised, you know, the, how different it is. And she said, I don't know that. And she asked me this kind of question. It is very difficult to give you answer. I don't know. So that's, that's why I'm saying to her, how you are lucky you are in Ireland. Is your teacher there still? He said no. Their teacher was gone. They were in their village. He didn't know what to learn. He didn't know how to write. Didn't know how to do anything. He just he didn't know what to do. His parents didn't know what to do. Well, my name is Shinji Kubo. I am UNHCR representative for Bangladesh. Uh, UNHCR in Bangladesh has been working very closely with the government and other humanitarian partners to try to address the plight of uh, Rohingya refugees who have come here uh, fleeing persecution. They have been here for more than 25 years and 
including the recent one, I think we are talking about probably more than 200,000 of Rohingya refugees. The bottom line is, this Rohingya population in Northern Akain State have been deprived of proper recognition as citizens of Myanmar for many, many years, since 1982, I think. And it is based on a very deeply rooted difficulties that this population has been placed uh, for a long, long time. Here in Bangladesh, UNHCR is mandated to protect this population from day one until we can find solutions for them. But unfortunately, because of the government policy, UNHCR is not officially requested to have access to these people. So on the ground, it is not so easy for UNHCR to exercise its mandate and provide effective protection for this group. We are working very closely uh, with the government authorities, NGO partners and other UN agencies, but without a proper role to play, as requested by government, uh, we still remain in a very precarious situation to address the problem of the new, newly arriving refugees. And the government of Bangladesh uh, is taking care uh, of all these refugees who are coming, uh, giving them the first aid, the food that's needed because it's a humanitarian issue. And the government of Prime Minister Sheikh is very concerned and she has appealed to the world community to help these Rohingyas and end this problem and to ensure that they can safely go back to their homes. We are not a very rich country. We are just on our way to the economic part that the Prime Minister's vision is there, that we will be a fully developed country by the 2041. So we are working on it. But at this time, additional population, we are already overburdened by population. Any additional population, feeding them, looking after them is a huge economic burden on Bangladesh. Besides that, our experience has been very bad with the Rohingya people in Bangladesh. And, you know, the Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi has been quiet, but um, uh, we have made uh, requests to her also to you know, look at this issue with sympathy and understanding that why a generation of people who have lived there for ages should be thrown out, out of nowhere, where they will go. Emissaries uh, have gone to Myanmar. The foreign ministry has summoned the uh, Myanmar ambassador in Dhaka to, uh, to explain what they have to say and what we can do together because it's only way to solve this problem is to understand where is the problem. Because if you just don't like one, you cannot throw them out, you know. What is their crime? What crime do Rohingyas have committed there? So you cannot make them uh, stateless. They have been there in Myanmar for ages, and they should go back to their home, which is their traditional homeland. Some of the stories from women, and I suppose obviously it resonates all the more because they're a mother, they had witnessed awful atrocities. They have pushed me and they forced me to lie down. They committed a gang rape on me one by one, those three military. And I couldn't tolerate my pain. All the body became numbness. And then I became senseless. Some children were playing beside me. They carried me to my house. That house was turned into ashes. 
He had seen his dad being shot and this little fellow was no more than seven when I asked him about his home place and memories of his earlier childhood. That was the key one in his little world. He is saying that our life has been gone. Will our children give any bright future? Our life already has been gone. Will our children may get any future, any brightness? We are a peace-loving people. We really like to be solution. Rohingya issue should be on the peace way. Today, international community, we are again and again asking their help solve our problem as soon as possible. Brother Rafi, he is a great person. He is showing as an ambassador of Rohingya in Ireland. He is talking with the president of Ireland. He is talking with Mr. Ban Ki-moon. He is talking with any other government officials. He is talking with educationists. He is talking with sportsmen. He is talking with cultural personalities. I think Rafika, the wife of Rafik, is working with the cultural awareness in Ireland. So this is a diversity of culture, education, sports. Is this not peaceful coexistence with other community? Peacekeeper, military lobbies, they are raising their voice against this community. These are not peacekeeper. This Rohingya community has yes. no other voice. Yeah. So please consider us. We want peace. We want education. We want cultural heritage. We want sur- to survive easily. We want to live smoothly. Just getting the basic fundamental rights. We don't want any kingdom. We don't need million, billion money. We would like to survive just easily with our basic fundamental rights. It is our urge, not demand. Not demand. We have no rights for demanding. We are stateless. It is our request. It is our urge. Would you not provide us these basic fundamental rights? They take away the water. They take away. They take away the the children's toys. They take away their medicine. They take away the the ladders. They take away television. They. T- you're only four years old, and you're so clever. So your country now is Ireland. Do you like Ireland? Yes. We were first in Bangladesh, and then they moved us into another place, uh, Ireland, because they didn't like us to give giving us 
things and being happy with them. And what about the police and the government in Ireland? Do you think they'll take your things away? They're good. Have you played cricket yet? Yeah, I know how to play cricket. I got to matches with your dad? Yeah. He's second coach. Because he, mo- he knows all the Muslims that play cricket. That's what. So he's second in charge. The Carlo people are delighted that Rafiq lives in Carlo because he's so good at cricket and he's, he's raised the profile of cricket and all of the Rohingya community have really helped it. Yeah. In Carlo clubs. In Carlo clubs. Yeah. Well, before Ireland was good at um, football, soccer, swimming, but now there's a new, <laughs> new sport in it, which is cricket. The most important role that refugees who are resettled to other countries can do is to become a bridge. Bridge of peace, bridge of understanding, bridge of tolerance. Because of the tremendous suffering that they sustained prior to starting the new life in the resettled countries, we have a very serious obligation and responsibility to continue to make that happen. So now you're an Irish citizen. Yeah, we're in 2013. We were Irish citizen. All the member of the. What does that mean to you? Oh, for us, I cannot explain you. You know, it is a big gift for us. My whole life was a stateless until 2013. Even for example in Bangladesh, on that day when I got citizen certificate in my hand, I cried, but it's not for sadness. I was very happy. I cannot control myself. You know. Really angered now and really frustrated when I hear people giving out about taking in refugees when we have our own homelessness crisis. But if we wait for a perfect Ireland, we'll never be able to reach out and help. And their need is right now. You can put fear in the way in so many things. You can let fear block everything. But refugees are as human as you and I. And I think when people start to fear them, they need to sit back and go, "That could be my dad, my brother, my mam, my little baby." After this experience, my eyes are so wide open. When someone says refugee to me, I'm back holding that little baby. Could I hold the baby? Could I? I'd love to. Immediately transported to Balakli and that little wreck of a home where that beautiful lady is about to try and raise a little child and feel hope and feel joy, where really their situation is so far removed from the very privileged homes that we live in. They would kill the baby as small as this. That's just one story of so many thousands. The story of a Rohingya journey was presented by Angela Mahan and made with the support of the Simon Cumbers Media Fund. KCL.